Well, good morning. good morning. Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. We are so glad you're here this morning. Uh, my name is Matt, and I have the joy and honor of being the campus pastor here. And I feel like I've come out of retirement after two weeks off. Um, but hey, I just wanted to say thank you so much for praying for us as a family. Um, Jocko is officially a big brother, and uh, baby Callum, yeah, come on. Uh, baby Callum is uh, the new addition to the family, and uh, so far, um, Jocko has only thrown one object at him, um, so I'm just going to live in the delusion that that will be the last object ever thrown at their head. Um, no, I anticipate a lot of ER visits with two boys so close in age, but we're just so grateful. Um, you guys are ridiculously generous, and I had to install a home gym to keep up with all the good food you've been bringing us, um, but seriously, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such a, a gift, and mom's healthy, baby's healthy, all is, all is awesome there, so... Um, hey, we are in week three of our series, uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to David, uh, just doing a great job the last two weeks. Let's give him a round of applause. Come on. I'm going to assume that was his wife that just whistled for him. Uh, but <laughs> we, love, we love David and Joanna. So glad they're here uh, to be part of the team and uh, just kicked off this series. And uh, hey, what we've been looking at this series is just kind of the complication of church. Um, maybe you've been around church, maybe this is your first time in a church, um, but church is uh, full of messy people. And it's kind of this weird contradiction because we think you follow a God who's perfect and loving and kind, shouldn't you all be loving and kind and perfect? And the answer is yes, but we're not there yet. And in that not there yet process means that we're still broken. It's not a place for perfect people. It's a place where uh, broken people come and meet perfect love and are changed forever. And so in that process, um, uh, one of my favorite pastors says it this way. It's like when you have a newborn in the house, sometimes you get poop on the wall. All right. <laughs> I've repainted my walls. So I'm just kidding. But, uh, but what he means is that if you're going to have people who don't know Jesus or are new to the faith, it's going to be messy. And that's exactly what was happening in the church at Corinth. They were new. Paul had planted the church about, uh, about three years uh, ago or somewhere in that, process, that timeline. And basically, um, they weren't getting it right. Um, if you looked in on this church, you'd be seriously concerned. So they're coming into communion. Uh, they're getting wasted because they're not drinking out of the little plastic containers with styrofoam on top that we serve you. Uh, they were drinking the real stuff, the Chardonnays, and they were getting wasted during church services. And um, they were visiting temple prostitutes, and the guy was sleeping with a stepmom, and it was just so, so fractured and so messed up. So Paul looks in on this church, writing back a letter to them, basically saying, it's time to grow up and here's the things we need to work on. And as David said last week, he spends the first four chapters, 25% of the book, dealing with the problem of unity. But he bases all of that on this idea of grace, that um, currency of church is, is, or excuse me, ought to be grace. As you uh, navigate relationships within the church, your currency is grace because we all are in desperate need of it, right? And therefore, if that's true, we ought to be unified underneath that grace. There should be no divisions among us, is what Paul said. We should be perfectly united in mind, which um, is difficult. It's a high task. And so we're, what we're going to talk about today is the motivation behind why we are unified why we as a church and why you with other churches and other believers um, ought to be unified and of one mind, and it's because of the cross. And so we're going to talk about that today. But to really understand this passage that Paul's going to lean into, he's going to talk about a division or a dividing line that, that will be drawn. I mean, it's line drawn at the cross. But in order to understand this passage rightly, you have to kind of get into the mindset of the people who originally received this letter. 
So uh, first century uh, church in Corinth is very different yet very similar to us, but they lived under Roman rule and Roman rule had uh, the form of the cross as a form of execution. And so um, in order to understand that, maybe, maybe this will help you uh, understand what it would have been for them to hear a story or a message about the cross. So let's say this morning you're sitting next to somebody you don't know and you look over and you see some bomb earrings in their ears and you curiously lean in and ask the question, what are the earrings for? And they say, well, I'm celebrating that time we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You would find a new row and slide over. Let's say tomorrow morning you go into work and uh, your boss put a new banner up and it says to work is freedom. And you say, what's this all about? He says, oh, we're, we're celebrating Auschwitz today. We really liked the productivity that they got. Um, you would call 911 and find new employment immediately, all right? Let's say your kid's coming home from college this summer, and uh, as they're walking in the door, they, you remember they told you they got a tattoo, but they wouldn't FaceTime you and show you what the tattoo was. And you walk in and you see on their neck is the electric chair tattooed on their neck. Okay, serious reprimand. And then you're taking him right to the Salvation Army to buy the ugliest turtlenecks you can find and making them wear it the entire time you're in your house. Maybe you see somebody walking down the street with a necklace with a, a needle on it, and you we curiously ask what that is about. And they say, oh, I'm, I'm celebrating lethal injection and the death penalty. All right? You are so uncomfortable right now. Your faces are palatable with, with discomfort. <laughs> Talking about these things is not meant for polite company. This isn't dinner conversation. You feel weird that we're even talking about this. And this is exactly how the first century church in Corinth would have felt if somebody talked about the cross. If they saw somebody rock up with a, a cross tattoo or a cross necklace, or they came to a building and they saw the cross on it, they would not think it was a church. They would think it was an execution hall. See, the, the cross was Rome's most aggressive form of execution that they had at their disposal. It was so aggressive, the Jews were never allowed to do it. You were totally exempt from it if you were a Roman citizen because it was too brutal. Um, it was reserved for the worst of worse than the slaves. So when Paul begins to, to have this conversation, we're going to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's going to have this conversation about the cross. You have to feel the discomfort of him celebrating the electric chair. He's literally going to base our unity on a form of execution. And if you're here and you're not a believer and you think this is weird, it is weird. And that's exactly what Paul is going to get into and talk about how crazy this sounds to um, the logic of human wisdom. But the interesting thing about this cross that would have been so offensive to them is it was the way God chose to rescue mankind, but it also created a divide in mankind. And that's what we're going to read about today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have one, we'd love to put one in your hand for free back at the Welcome Center. If not, it'll be on uh, the screen behind me. I'd encourage you to take notes, mark up your Bible as we go through this. We're going to cover the whole chapter and a little bit of chapter 2. Um, so we're just going to kind of walk through this. Paul has just made his big uh, pitch for unity in the earlier part of chapter one, and here's what he says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
We said last week that we don't create divides on earth that won't exist in heaven, that there's all these things that we can be fractured over and not talk to people about and not associate with people who uh, believe certain things. And Paul says, don't create divides on earth that won't exist in heaven because verse 18 tells us there will be a divide that exists in eternity and it will separate all of mankind into two camps. It will be the deepest dividing line that there is. And he says here that the to those who, let's go ahead and throw this up. To those who are perishing, they view the cross as foolish. He's talking about those who don't understand and don't believe the gospel for themselves to look in on a savior, the God of the universe that was going to come down and die at the hands of the Roman empire in execution style. That's the guy you believe your eternity for? Like it just sounds crazy, especially to the Jews who thought um, this Messiah or savior was coming to destroy Rome, not be destroyed by Rome. So that's one camp. Those who reject the gospel, it's foolish. Then he says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul divides the entire world into two camps, those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. Those who do see the cross as power, not as their power, but as Christ's power to rescue them from their sin. And this is why Paul is so adamant about unity is because at the end of the day, when you uh, leave this world, you will be put into one of two camps and it will be based entirely upon your response to the gospel. It will be based entirely upon what you do with what Jesus did at the cross. And so David was talking about of, of accepting the gift. And here's why this is important for Christians. It means a couple things you are going to have to spend eternity with people that you are currently divided from. There are people who claim the name of Christ who perhaps don't associate with you, you won't associate with, you won't talk to you. Here's the deal. There's no separation in heaven. There's no Republican heaven or Democratic heaven or Baptist heaven or Pentecostal heaven. Like, it's just heaven. And so what Paul's urging is you might as well start getting along now. But also, you should start seeing people differently. That's kind of what we're going to lean into today. Let's keep reading. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made, the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul's going to draw out three people and he's drawing out his audience. So Corinth is made up of Jews, Greeks, and, and those who really uh, heavily believed in Roman philosophy and way of life. And so he, he brings up three things here. Where's the wise person? He's talking about um, in Corinth, there was this auditorium that fit about 3,000 people. And because of where Corinth was positioned, everything going uh, west in the empire and everything going east in the empire really had to pass through Corinth. So it was an international city with lots of people. And this auditorium was where the best of the best communicators would come and speak. So it's essentially like getting invited to the best TED Talk in the nation, right? That, that was their um, auditorium. And so he says, where is that person? Where is your good and wise, intelligent speakers? Where, where are they? Next one is those who are the teachers of the law. He's drawing out the Jewish people and he says, bring me your scholars who know the Old Testament. Those who think their religious behavior is going to save them, bring them here. And he says, where is the philosopher? Referring to those who believed in Greek mythology and those things. He said, bring me your best debater and let me set them in front of the gospel. And here's what he's saying. Where do they fit? Where do those things in the cross collide? And he says, no, no, no. The cross makes all of them, your most intelligent, look foolish. Because the cross contradicts conventional wisdom. 
the cross also contradicts religious practices. Because what the cross says is there's no amount of good deeds you could do to ever earn God's favor. Every other religion around the world is based upon you doing enough right rituals to earn that God's favor. Well, the cross says, no, no, no. Not only can you not earn that favor, the very God you are trying to please is going to die to pay the penalty for you so that you might be brought in. It just, it breaks the brain if you are trying to earn it based on religion. So that's what he is arguing back with them against. He says in verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, meaning we couldn't figure it out on our own. God was pleased to the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Here's what he says. The reason, and this is why this is important to unity. The reason we have unity is not because we all go to Bridgewater, wear the same shirts or whatever. The reason we have unity is because we all have salvation from the same source, and it is at the cross. See, our salvation comes from the cross. And here's what was happening in Corinth. They were basically saying, I'm smarter, so I'm enlightened, and I know, I, I know God. Or I follow the law, so I'm better than you, therefore I know God more. And Paul says, nonsense. The only way you get in is because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because he has come to pay your debt. You see, the cross is the great equalizer of mankind. So you walked in here this morning, um, perhaps feeling a little bit better than somebody because your sin doesn't stink quite as somebody else or because you believe differently than somebody else and so it makes you feel better than them. Or you walked in here this morning full of guilt and shame because you felt less than somebody or you felt like somebody was better than you and you were unworthy. See, the cross says none of that matters because you and I, as your pastor, stand on the exact same ground at the foot of the cross and it is that we are all equally condemned. There is no amount of good behavior that can make up for it. But the good news is that we are all equally given the same opportunity to the grace of Jesus. There is no enlightenment, there is no wisdom you need to know other than what Paul is going to say and, and contrast them here in the next verse. The reason this is so difficult for people is simply this. Verse 22, Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Jews demanded a sign, maybe you Felt like you have demanded a sign. God, if you would just prove yourself, then I would believe. Or um, they demanded wisdom. Maybe some things just you don't have all the answers you think you uh, need. And so you're uh, pushing off against that. But Paul says this is a stumbling block to them because all they would preach was Jesus. And here, here's why. The Jews wanted a conquering Messiah or a conquering Savior, not a crucified Messiah. That's what they wanted out of Jesus. And so to hear this guy going to the cross, it just didn't fit with their desire for power. The Greeks wanted a philosophical genius, not a self-sacrificing servant. Servants were looked down on in that day. And to have a leader who's saying that you have to be the servant of all, it just so contradicted them. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know what? Jesus probably, the message of the gospel was probably a great disappointment to a lot of people in the same way that um, Jesus would probably disappoint a lot of people in 2022 America. He would probably disappoint a lot of churchgoers in 2022 America because um, based on what we see in scripture, it's unlikely he would back a presidential candidate. You know why? 
because he refused to in his day. And in fact, when he gathered his followers, he gathered one from every socio-political party that all disagreed with each other and said, come on, all of you and all of your disagreements, come follow me, come be my disciples. He crossed party lines like crazy. They would have, today probably would have wanted him to run for president because he's wise and he's the God of the universe. But when they ran to try to make Jesus king and they tried to take him by force, you know what he did? He vanished and he disappeared. They would have wanted him to be in a position of power, but you know where they kept finding Jesus? In the heroin alley, sitting with the lowly. See, Jesus came not to be powerful, smart, or wise. And this is why he's a stumbling block, because the cross was a stumbling block, because people didn't really want spiritual deliverance from their sin, but instead wanted someone to make them powerful, smart, and safe. Is that not the American dream? Powerful, smart, and safe? Is that not where division and tension comes from because I'm more powerful than you or I'm smarter than you or because of the decisions I made, I'm now safer than you? And Jesus came along and said, no, no, no. The things you think are your biggest problem are not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is sin. I find it really interesting that the things that can divide us most as a culture are the very things they demanded of Jesus that he just wouldn't give them because he didn't want them to be distracted by the wrong dividing lines. Because those dividing lines will not exist in eternity, but one will, and it's what we do with the cross. Verse 24, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, meaning whatever race you are, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Paul sets up this contrast of those who simply believe and those really smart people above and says, listen, the wisdom of God is far beyond what you can understand. And then he goes on to say, uh, basically, God uses the weak to shame the strong. And this passage has been misused a bunch. I mean, if you've heard it preached before, you know, you've probably heard like, if you're weak and unqualified and not that bright, you're exactly who God wants. And everybody who doesn't feel that feels like God doesn't want to use you, Right? So essentially they're saying like, um, you know, if you're a pastor, it's because you're dumb, all right? Well, that might be true in this case, but that's not true in every case, all right? (laughs) If we recruited you for a small group leader, it's because we think you're weak and incompetent. No, that's not what this passage is saying. What this passage is saying is that the way of Christ does not meet the standards of the world because we believe things that seem crazy to the world. So we don't meet the standards of of power because God has called us to self-sacrifice and to give up that power for the good of others. We look crazy because we believe in the traditional values of marriage. We look crazy because we believe in the sanctity of human life. We look crazy because we believe in the resurrection. And so the world says, if you believe those things, you you must be nuts. And I think that's exactly how God designed it. So that when we looked in on the Christian walk, verse 29 would be true. So that no one may boast before him. 
so that no one may boast before him. Here's what he means. The things that we boast about that cause tension, that cause division, they mean nothing. They are irrelevant. There is no leg for us to stand on on any of those things. He says, the only thing I have to boast about is what God did at the cross and he did the impossible. He broke down the barriers that I couldn't break down. I I owe everything to him. And he says that in verse 30. It is because of him, being God, that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's why the cross is so pivotal to our conversation about unity. Because so often the things that we become divided over are simply pride points. That we think we know better. And Paul says, listen, the only boasting ground you have is what Christ did for you that you were a recipient of. And what he's meaning is uh, when we win, it's because of the cross. Any win you have in your life, anything you can claim on is because of what Jesus already did at the cross. And so that changes how I interact with people. It creates this humility that says, without what Jesus did for me, I'm done. But it also means you can't take that win away from me. I can't lose. I can lose a lot of things that don't matter, but I can't lose the one that does because Christ established that, not me. Here's what this means for you. I want you to consider this thought. For me to win as a believer, someone else does not have to lose. For me to win, someone else does not have to lose. We think of conflict and arguments and disagreements as win or lose, but it's not. I can lose the argument. I can lose the disagreement. I can lose the debate. I can lose the money, and we'll get into that in a couple weeks. I can lose all of that, and I still win. So the next time you're in a conflict with your wife, the next time I'm in conflict with my wife, what would it look like if I paused and said, she doesn't have to lose in order for me to win? Next time you're in a debate with your boss or a coworker, what would it look like for you to go, I don't have to win this argument with you because I win the one that matters, and it's because of Jesus. So I can lose this one here. Now, are those conversations important? Absolutely. Have them. But do them out of a spirit, humility, and grace that you have no boasting in you. That's what Paul is trying to get across to them. And he models it in his own life. In chapter 2, he says this. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Now, pause right there. Paul was very smart. Before he converted to Christianity and Christ met him, he was very high in the Jewish uh, religious system. He was incredibly well-educated, incredibly well-spoken. He spoke in the, the biggest arenas out there. So it's not that he was dumb. What he was saying was, I didn't come in trying to impress you. I wasn't trying to win you over by trying to outsmart you. I just shared the gospel with you, which is what he says in verse two. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling because he was getting beat at every other city that he preached the gospel in. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. If you were here last week or if you weren't, what happened was basically the church was beginning to follow. Uh, they say, oh, I follow Paul because, you know, he started this church. Uh, another group was saying, well, I follow Apollos because he's our current pastor and he, he digs deep. And there was all this division. And Paul says, listen, I didn't come for you to be my followers because that doesn't save any of you. I came to talk about Jesus and Jesus alone so that you might find hope. 
is a resolve to know nothing. This brings us to our third and final point. Our message should be about the cross. And here's what I mean by message. The message of your life and my life ought to be centered on the cross. We ought to view everything through the cross. That we would see people around us, that we would see ourselves, that the words we speak, the actions that we take, the reactions that we make would all uh, go through the cross. And here's what I mean. At the cross, what Jesus did, according to Romans, what we see in the book of Romans, he says it a couple times, that while we were still God's enemies, while we were still divided from God, while we were still in disagreement with God, God went to the cross and died for us. Before we apologized, before we repented, before we made things right, he forgave us. That ought to motivate and filter everything we do as Christians. Here's kind of the takeaway for the sermon for you. The way Jesus treated me at the cross is the way I am to treat others. The way Jesus treated me at the cross is the way I am to treat others. So here's what this means. You've got that neighbor, just drives you nuts. A dog keeps pooping on your lawn, or I, I don't know what it is, right? What if you paused and looked at that individual that you would like to call HOA on and said, all right, what does the cross tell me about you? The cross tells me that you might not be a believer. You might not know Jesus. And am I really willing to draw a dividing line in our property that has eternal consequences and where their eternal real estate is? Is it really that important to me? Or should I consider how Jesus treated me and treat you likewise? Consider the coworker that is just always brown-nosing the boss and always trying to take credit for things that you did and you just want somebody so badly to put sour milk in their coffee in the morning, right? Like just... You all have that person, I'm sure, somewhere, or at least have had that person. Well, consider what the cross would tell you about that individual. Perhaps all that brown-nosing is just simply a revelation of their insecurity because they don't know God. They don't know how much they're loved. They don't know how worthy they are. And so, of course, they're acting that way. What would the gospel tell you? To go love that person so, so well. To lose the debate in front of the boss why? Because I wouldn't want to win this one and lose the big one. Let's talk about forgiveness. Maybe somebody's really hurt you and really wronged you and it's genuine and it's not false. Okay, well, what does the cross tell me? The cross tells me that um, no matter how large someone's offense against me, my offense against God was far greater. So I really am grateful that God didn't look at me and say, well, now you've done too much, Matt. You've crossed too many lines. You're out now. That's not what he did. What he did was said, there's nothing you can out-sin the cross. Nothing you can do to out-sin the cross. Well, I ought to walk in that level of forgiveness. Is it difficult? It's the hardest thing you'll ever have to do in your life. But it is what our life is to be about. Here's why Paul centers all of his uh, talk around unity around the cross is because it's the only shot we have. Because it is the only place where sinners are changed. It is the only place where broken are healed. It is the only place where the fractured are made whole. So in your small groups this week or in a conversation with a friend, I want you to consider this question. What would it look like for every area of your life to be influenced by the cross? Your home, your family, your job, your work, wherever it is. What would it look like if you paused and said, okay, what does the cross tell me? Okay, this is gonna be really hard. 
But glory to God, he's given me the power through his spirit to do it. Maybe you're here today and um, all this is kind of new and you don't know Jesus and you haven't accepted. And um, the truth is what scripture tells us is that uh, if we are unwilling to submit and accept his forgiveness, our eternal zip code is not a good one. It's far from God and it's far from love and it's far from grace. And maybe for you, the question really is, what would my life look like if it was influenced by the cross? What would it look like if I repented of my sin? If I accepted the free gift of salvation, I would tell you everything would change. Would you be perfect tomorrow? No, but you'd be on your way there. Would it be the greatest thing you've ever done? Absolutely. Would we love to have a conversation with you about that? You bet. God in his grace decided to be foolish in the world's eyes so that those who simply believed in the gospel could find hope. That it's not for the smart, it's not for the super intelligent, though those things don't get in the way. But the message of the cross is no one is too far gone. Wherever you came in here, nobody is too far gone. And no matter how great you think you are, you can stop the act because the cross says you're in anyways. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, I'm so humbled by the cross and the acceptance there. God, I pray that you would forgive us for the things that we have made more important than the eternal destiny of our friends and family. Forgive us for the arguments that we have, have just staked our life to that don't mean anything in a thousand years. God, I pray that we would be people who filter our words, our speech, our actions, our reactions through the love that has been shown us at the cross. Pray for every heart in this room, God, that we would just be so impressed with your love that there was nothing that you could not overcome in us. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, it's simple, it's not complicated. It's simply believing that Christ came and paid your debt, that you would accept that, you would repent of your sin and find him to be your glorious savior. If you would like to know more about that, find me, find somebody who brought you. We'd love to pray with you and show you what your next steps are. Jesus, we love you. We pray that this church would be marked by the cross of Jesus Christ. It would be marked by self-sacrifice. It would be marked by giving. It would be marked by unconditional love that the world around us would hear that there is hope in a broken that as messy as we are, God, that you would bless this church to do mighty things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.